Now, how many of you dads or maybe even, can you bring me down? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit loud right now. How many of you moms or dads would play a game with your kids and you would have them chase you and maybe you would stumble and fall and they would grab you or maybe you would chase or they would chase you around and you were just kind of baiting them and luring them along and, and then you would eventually turn around and you would grab them as if you captured them. Isn't that ironic how really we chase after God, but he is the one who captures us. Amen? I said amen? amen. All right, great. We're awake tonight. Excellent. <clears throat> Thank you, Diego. One hot day in the middle of summer, a lion and a boar went to a spring to drink. Step aside, the boar said. I was here first. I showed you where to find the spring, the lion replied angrily. I will be the first to drink. Quickly, the disagreement escalated from a verbal confrontation, and they began to attack each other with great ferocity, a few minutes later, stopping to catch their breath, they both saw some vultures seated on a rock above, waiting for one of them to be killed. The sight so sobered them that they quickly made peace, saying, if we continue to fight, the only winner will be the vultures. Here's my question to you tonight. Who really won your last argument? Who really won your last disagreement, your last fight? You know, some so completely justify their actions, even if wrong, to stand for what they believe is right. They call it justification by faith. You may have to think about that one. I remember some many, many years ago, uh, I, I can't even remember where I was. I was uh, speaking with a particular gentleman. I introduced myself uh, I pastored a Powerline Community Church, and this is many, many years ago. And he said, oh, you know what? I'm going to be pastoring a church here soon. We're going to be planting a church. I said, really? Well, tell me about it. He said, well, right now I'm part of a, a rather large church, and there's a, there's a disagreement, and there's some things that leadership has done, and we disagree with it. And I said, yes. This wasn't exactly what I was expecting. And he said, and, and many of us are very upset with the leadership and so I have decided to, to start another church. And I said, how do you propose to do this? I said, I'm basically going to take a, a lot of people in the church, and we're going to, we're going to start another church. And, and I really challenged him to consider what he was doing, but he, he felt so justified, so right in what he was doing, he truly believed that he was God's man for the hour. And that he was going to rescue this church. And this was a Bible-believing church. This was a conservative, Bible-preaching church. And I did not get into the, 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 the details of it. It Honestly, the little bit that he shared seemed somewhat trivial to me. I was amazed. Absolutely amazed. I, I, he told me where he was going to be. He already had the first service planned. This guy was in his, he was a youth pastor, but he was also involved in other portions of the ministry. Early 30s, and he began meeting in a Seventh-day Adventist church nearby. 
I found out some late years later that they actually moved into a church building and the church eventually folded. He felt completely justified. You know, we can feel so justified in our actions that end up breeding arguments and disunity. 1 Corinthians 6, and you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us many of you are in disagreements with one another to the point where you're going to court over being wronged. And I assume that there's probably some finances or land or something that's involved. And he said, you, you take your problems out to the world and you're looking for the world to make it right for you. But we are believers in Jesus Christ and you, in essence, he is saying, you're airing our dirty laundry. Go to the church leaders, have them resolve it. And you know what? Here's the bottom line. And I quote from verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians, uh, 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians 6. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead you, cheat your, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Can I just say this? Real justification by faith is free. But justification of what breeds disunity carries a high price tag. The title for the sermon tonight is The Price Tag on Disunity. And going through this sermon series, Purchased with Purpose, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John 17. We're talking about God's grace and how God's grace is poured out to us as His church on a daily basis to this point. Number one, He loves to display His grace in the lost to bring them into relationship with himself, bring them into the church. And as we looked at Acts chapter 2, this was happening on a daily basis. There were thousands in the church, and it was growing on a regular basis. Even the church that was considered a cult in their time found favor with those that they were ministering to, Jews. Amazing how God was pouring out His grace through the believers into the community, finding them, then finding favor, uh, excuse me, then the church finding favor with them, and as a result, people were being added to the church daily. As we look at this concept of God's grace, that He actually allows us to go through seasons of difficulty just so that He can pour out His grace upon you in your life. So that many times your, your shoulders are up against the wall and there is nowhere else to go but to trust in Him that you cannot pull finances out of the hat and God provides. You're praying, God, I need this provision for school or for work or my family or I've got to pay this bill. Where is it going to come from? And our God loves to put us in those impossible situations because we serve a God of the impossibility, church. And he pours out his grace. And we talked about this being God's drama or docudrama of grace in all of our lives. Tonight, I want to talk about the 
the essential ingredient or one of the essential ingredients for Jesus' church to truly reach the lost, and that is unity. Unity is absolutely key. It is on the heart of God. He loves to see his church unified. And as they are unified, there is grace that is poured out upon his church. And consequently, they are empowered to be able to reach the lost. Let's read about that. John chapter 17. I'm going to start with verse 13. John 17, 13. This is Jesus's priestly prayer, or as some call it, his high priestly prayer to the Father. In chapter 18, he gets betrayed by Judas Iscariot. These are truly the last words that his disciples hear him speak, and they are a prayer to his heavenly Father. And he says to his Father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified or that they may be sanctified in truth. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. I in them, and you in me. May they be brought, or so that they may be brought to complete unity, so that the world know, or may know, that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now, why did I change those words? That is the very clear implication of the literal Greek, so that, not just let, but so that. There is a cause and effect here. And the initial cause is unity. The effect of our unity is that the world may know that, that God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Now think of the implications of this. This isn't just some intellectual knowledge. Oh yeah, as we see the church unified, we get it. Yeah, God sent His Son, Jesus. Now, I mean, imagine that news breaking, dawning into the heart of the unbeliever that is a recognition of who Jesus is. Jesus, in essence, is praying, God, make them one so this world may know who I am and that this world may experience unprecedented revival. This is truly what is on his heart. Bring unity 
so that they so that you may bring revival. In Ed Silvoso's book, That None Should Perish, he speaks uh, from personal experience as one in Argentina. He speaks from personal experience about what God did in that, in that nation. Three million gave their hearts to Christ. Now, I, I've touched on this before, but I want you to, to, to realize that as he, as he lays out in his book several steps to what happens in Jesus' church so that it, it permits the Spirit of God to flow through the church and pour out His Spirit, that His grace be, fall upon that, the soil, make it good soil. When the seed is planted, it springs up, produces some 30, 60, 100-fold of fruit. And in this book, he reveals uh, from their personal experience and scripturally, Several things that happened. One of them, and he says it's one of the most significant things, was the unity that needed to take place in the cities, in the country itself. Denominational barriers lowered so that there would be unity. Now, we have to ask the question, does denominational barriers, is that what's really creating the disunity? And I'm going to challenge you, because there are many that truly believe that that's the problem. We need to get rid of all denominations. I'm going to tell you, that is not the problem in any way. The problem is not the denominational barriers. The problem is not theology. Theology is not divisive. Have you ever heard people, oh, tongues is just so divisive, we don't talk about it here. I'm sorry, but the teaching about tongues is not divisive. Now, that might catch you a little bit by surprise. Obviously, we, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. The issue of whether the gifts of the Spirit are in full manifestation in our day or not, I believe they truly are. There are some godly men who would, who would disagree with that. But that is not what breeds disunity in the body of Christ. Let me read to you from uh, Neil Anderson's book, Setting Your Church Free. And the, under this uh, the chapter of unity, he touches on this issue of theology. He says, theology is perceived as being divisive by some. David F. Wells argues that modernity, that is modern theology, has abandoned absolute truth for a psychologized, pragmatic, and subjective view of truth. What is true has been replaced by what works. Is theology divisive? He says it can be if the truth is not proclaimed in love or if we allow doctrine to be an end in itself. That is the problem. The problem is not theology. The problem is the one who espouses his theology. The problem is not what Scripture teaches and how we might understand it. It's how firmly rooted we are in it and how adamantly we oppose one another to be able to... It's kind of like king on the hill or king on the mountain. What, what's the expression? King, king of the hill. Thank you. King of, it's like king of the hill. We play king of the hill. Let me bash your arguments and show you how much smarter I am than you and how much more right I am than you or how our theological persuasion is, is more accurate than yours. And, and that becomes an end in itself. 
Jesus never taught that. Theology is the beginning point. It is not the end point. Add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And I grew up in a denomination in which it was perceived there was a period there. And that was it. And their goal was knowledge. But it doesn't say add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, period. Now let's move on. But add to your knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And I'm not done yet. To your godliness, add brotherly love. And to brotherly love, hello, love. Agape love. And these things need to exist in your life in increasing measure. Never think you have arrived. Never. Knowledge. Gnosis is the word there. That is never the goal. Knowledge. See, when we do that, when we put a period there, knowledge puffs up. But love, the goal, that builds up. Theology in itself is not divisive. It's people who are divisive. I want us to step back now. We're talking about unity. Unity, as Paul put it in Ephesians 4, unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God so so that we might become the mature man, filled to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. We will have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers until then. Reaching unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That does not mean that we all think exactly the same when it comes to the millennium. The church has been divided on this for almost 2,000 years. I seriously doubt that someone is going to write a book and we're all going to step back and say, Whoa, that's the book of all books. That's, That's the answer. That's it. I seriously doubt that. I truly believe that God purposely wrote his word so that men, even though they would disagree, would be willing to lay aside their disagreements or to agree to disagree, but focus on that one absolute truth that is so clear in Scripture that salvation depends on it that he called the gospel. That is where we are immovable. But outside of that, the non-essentials, we express charity and we express love. And the problem with theology is not the theology itself. It is the person. It is how they express it. They can become divisive. They can become filled with pride. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So what I want us to do is I want us to step back from this passage here in John 17. I want us to see this, I just touched on very briefly, this cause and effect that we see laid out here in verse 23 about making us complete, bringing us to complete unity. Interesting, he doesn't just say unity, but complete unity. So that, and I'm going to paraphrase, the world may experience revival. That everyone will know who I am. Not just know about who I am, would truly know to experience, not just intellectually understand, but experience who this Jesus really is. That 
is Jesus' goal in his prayer here. And my question then, and I don't know about you, but there's something that beats in my heart concerning complete unity and what that involves. I want my goal to be complete unity so that God's goal can be achieved worldwide revival. Revival here in Sanford, Lake Mary, and, and beyond, and as it extends out to further, as churches are unified, as, but people within the churches unified. I'm not going to say what type of church this is, but I was speaking with a brother, and he had done some study on this, and within a particular network of churches, he said those churches that have, all of those churches, he said, are the result of church splits. And you have to step back and you say, what? What is wrong? Why would we do this? Why would we be so quick to disagree that we want to start another church? You know, I just so disagree. I mean, if it's about the gospel, that's one thing, but it wasn't. Paul said, excuse me, Jesus says here, number one, he says that they have, my prayer is not, verse 15, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It would be easy for us to see what Jesus is saying like this. And I'm going to put up here, right up here, the true church, okay? And, and that, that's honestly, in my opinion, a little redundant, but I think maybe it would be good for us to, for me to write that up here. And what, what, what we believe is that Jesus is saying, yep, there is this strong line here, and we are separated from the world, but really he doesn't word it that way. Really... He words it a little differently, and he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, not that you separate them like this, because that would mean you'd have to take the world, take the church out of the world. But he says, I pray that that though they are in the world, and here I will write just, the church. That though they are in the world, they will be separate from the world. Though you rub shoulders with the world, in essence, you will not be like the world. You will not seek to emulate the world. You will not start envying the world. You will not be seduced by the world and their philosophies and their way of thinking and their marketing schemes and feel as if you have to have that next iPhone. Oh my goodness, my life will be completely incomplete without it. And many people in the church truly feel this way. Oh my goodness, those are the coolest Nikes. I have to have a pair. Mom, they're only $215. No. And the teen's life crumbles before their very eyes. They cannot face their friends the next day because they don't have the Nikes. Doesn't your heart just go out to them? And this, we get caught up in the world and, and, and our eyes are blinded and Jesus says, no. 
We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And my prayer, Father, is that you protect them. Now, I'm going to draw many, many circles around the church here. And again, that is not to try and physically separate the church from the world. Because Jesus said in order to do that, you're going to have to start building things like communes and monasteries for monks to separate themselves. And, and actually, all of you, the whole church, are going to have to become monks and nuns. And that is truly not what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was clearly saying, you know what? They have got to be in the world. And they have got to so influence the world. They have got to be avenues, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, of your grace, Father, to make that bad soil tilled and ready to receive the word, good soil, so that when the word is planted and watered, it produces a heavenly fruit by the Spirit of God. But the problem is that too often the world ends up influencing the church. And we rub shoulders with the world. And it's not that we end up rubbing off on them, if you will, but they end up rubbing off on us. And so Jesus says, please, Father, protect the church. I love the church. I'm not asking that you take them out. I am asking that you protect them from the evil one. And the evil one is the one who takes all of this influence of the world and seeps it into the church in so many different ways. And the church would be wise to recognize, when is the world coming in here? Now, I do believe that Jesus is praying for physical protection. Or at least I would like to believe that he's praying for physical protection. But here's the truth. All of the apostles but one that he prayed for did die. They were martyred. The world killed them. Now, I pray for protection over my children, over my wife. When they were little, I would, it was almost like a memorized prayer. I tried to be a little bit creative with it. But I would say, Lord, make them world changers. This is after I sung over them or did a little rap over them on rare occasions. Okay, I would just pray over them, put my hands on them. And when there was three of them, it was really hard, and I'd have to start doing this and, you know, moving my hands around and, you know, what's like a twister, kind of like twister here. And I would say, Father, in Jesus' name, would you make them world changers? And would you surround them with your angels to keep them safe and protect them from all harm and sickness? My children have that prayer memorized. I prayed that prayer over them hundreds of times. Make them world changers. Protect them. Surround them with your angels and keep them safe from all harm and sickness. And I was praying for, for physical protection over them. Especially as the day arrived where they would finally be receiving their license. But I would pray protection over them. And everybody walking on the sidewalks, of course. But I would pray for protection over them. And the truth is, though, I was also praying that God would spiritually protect them. And I believe that that is the heart of Jesus' prayer here. I'm not saying that he's not praying for physical protection. But I do have to wonder, in Jesus' prayer, did it fail? Because they all ended up dying. 
that a real effective prayer, Jesus? No, I don't believe. I, be, I do believe because he also includes those who will listen to their message and believe. He just knew that it was ordained for those men to sacrifice their lives for the cause of the gospel. So I do believe that there is a physical protection he's praying for them for. But even more so, even more so, I believe that he is praying for their spiritual protection. And to do that, he launches into, it's short, but it is, it is, it is pointed, it is specific, and he uses this word that we will, we, he says in verse 17, sanctify them. Woo, man. Sanctify them. That sounds like a really powerful religious word, doesn't it? Sanctify them, Lord. But here is what Jesus is completely aware of. He says, this church right here cannot afford this, to be influenced by the world. Protect them from the evil one. And do this, God. As they go into this world, still within the protection of the Father, so sanctify them and keep them pure that they will be able to impact them. They will be so unified that this will not happen, but this will happen. That the world will not seep into the church, but that the church, is, as they're proclaiming the truth, the truth will seep into lived out, truth lived out, as well as truth proclaimed, seep into the world and impact the world. He realizes that if the church is going to be unified, the real answer is not unity in theology. The real answer is, God, my Father, you must sanctify them. That is where it all starts. If the church is influenced by the world, if the church adopts a backbiting mentality, if the church adopts the patterns of defensiveness in the world, then what's going to happen is not only disunity, but there will be no revival. There will be no revival. Now, here's the truth, church. We are, in a matter of months, going to be moving into a new place. For the first time, we will have the privilege... And I want to emphasize in this concept of privilege, God's grace. But he is entrusting us with something. So I call it a privilege, but it's really an entrustment. Is that a word? Entrustment? Anyway, sounds good. And we are receiving this privilege, this entrustment, that we would be in the world, though not of it, that we would be so sanctified, that we would be unified, that we would impact the communities around us. Now, don't get me wrong, my head is not filled with grandiose uh, ideas that we are the church, but rather, Jesus is the focus. Powerline is not the focus. Jesus is the focus. And if we are going to have any impact on these communities around us, church, we must be unified. But if we're going to be unified then God has got to protect us and get rid of the stinking thinking that has crept into our mind. Our mind. I'm not sure that anyone is an exception here. 
The devil wants to come in, and through various means that I'm going to touch on, he wants to breed thoughts of disunity. He wants to breed arguments. Maybe he wants to breed theological arguments. We try really hard in the theology class not to do that. And I thank you, some of you, especially this past Saturday, uh, Wednesday, I touched on a very difficult passage to understand, Romans seven fourteen to 25. And I am sure that some of you disagreed with me, and, but you were willing to absorb it, and I trust that you've been thinking about it, and I'm not asking you or telling you you must agree with me, but there are going to be many things that as a body we're just going to disagree on. But here's what we will agree on. If we disagree, we will agree to disagree with love. Speak the truth in love. Here's what I want to do, though. <clears throat> I want us to look at, <clears throat> very seriously, what the key to unity is. We, we understand it has to do with me. It doesn't have to do with theology. It doesn't even have to do with ideology. Democrat and Republican, believe it or not. It has to do with me, with us, with people, not the ideas, okay? The gospel is central. The gospel is what unifies us. The gospel is what every single one of us here tonight can fully agree on, and, and, and not just a little bit, but completely. And in that sense, we are completely unified. It's, then, it's when we get on our soapboxes, and we, want to, we just want to talk about this one theological idea, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong, and you know what, I need to prove that you're wrong, and you need to agree with me, and it, be, it becomes this, we become so filled with pride. We want to prove that we're right. Now, I hope that it did not come across that way this past Wednesday, because I did get somewhat passionate with regard to what I believed Romans 7 was teaching because of the implications. But here's what I told you. Calvin and Luther disagreed with me, or I disagreed with them. And they are incredible Awesome men of God. And here's the bottom line. Many have disagreed. But I took a passionate stance, and I hope it was not a prideful one, but a passionate stance because of the implications. We are not prisoners of the law of sin. We are not sold under sin. And there were, there were several other points, of course, but that we would be able to discuss these theological points and that what's in here doesn't keep us from being unified on the gospel. Unified and loving one another. It's when we start doing the talking behind people's backs and, or when we just start speaking our opinions to the point where it ends up being offensive. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's stuck in here. Let's, let's get rid of this. So I want to look at two things as far as what this is. Where Jesus is wanting us to be truly sanctified. I'd like us to look <clears throat> excuse me, to Romans 16. <clears throat> uh, 
In Romans 16, he is wrapping everything up here. 16, as you'll soon find out, last chapter in Romans. You almost get the feeling that he's wrapping it up at the end of 15 because he says, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And like any good pastor, but in conclusion, let me share one more chapter with you. (laughs) And then, of course, in verse 30, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But I'm not done. And then the very last verse, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm poking fun at him. And this is divine scripture, so I realize I must be careful. But I want us to realize that that Paul does what I do a lot. No, Paul Paul is bringing out a a point here in his P.S. Or maybe his P.P. at post-postscript. Let me just conclude with this here. Here's what he wants to... Here's what he wants to bring a thrust. And it's not even his last point, but it's one of his last ones. He says in verse 17, I urge you, brothers, whenever you see someone in Scripture writing, I urge you. This is by no means a suggestion. We would want it to reach out and grab our eyeballs and fix them on what he's about to say next. And that is this. I urge you, brothers. To watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Now, let, let's understand these people. Now, let me tell you what. Let me read one more verse and I'll explain. For such people are not serving a Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Interesting. I'm sorry, I, I added that. By smooth talk and flattery, They deceive the minds of naive people. That word naive in the NASB, it is unsuspecting. It's not stupid people. It's just people who are not aware of what's really going on here. It's like the frog in the kettle. In which that frog, being a cold-blooded animal, can adjust its body temperature. You put them in cold water. You turn the heat under the, the, uh, the eye of the stove and the water begins to escalate in temperature, and before you know it, the water boils and the frog does not jump out. He's unsuspecting. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive or unsuspecting people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So why am I going here? What's, what's the point that Paul is really even making here? It's not just about people who disagree. He is talking about people who have an agenda. Their agenda is contrary to Jesus' agenda. Jesus' agenda is the gospel. Jesus' agenda is not just the gospel, but a response and obedience to him. And these men come along, they're divisive. They want to pull people after them. There's something in their hearts that wants people to follow them. They have an idea. They have this way of living that is contrary to the teaching that Paul and the other apostles are teaching. 
It's a way of living that's contrary to that. And so what they do is they come in and with smooth sounding talk, and it seems so right. Have you ever listened to a smooth talker talking about uh, just the unity of all religions? I mean, who are we to express our opinions to, to these good people who, who believe in some other religion or, or some other truth? And why would you want to be, and they'll word it this way, why would we want to be so divisive, so unloving, to judge them and, oh my goodness, even say that they, if they didn't agree with you, they're going to hell? And the way they word this, it makes you almost feel bad for believing in what the Bible teaches. What? What deception? These people, they they come in with their smooth talking, and they lure people away. And the problem, yes, is in what they're teaching, but it's their heart that's depraved. It's their heart that, that wants people, because no doubt the apostles have rebuked them for their false teaching, but they keep reaching in and bringing people, follow me, listen to this, follow me. This is how the Gnostic movement became so popular. They constantly reached into the church with Greek uh, philosophy. And many in the church bought into Greek philosophy. They tried to wed it with Christianity. Origin was one of them. And whether Origin went too far or not is debatable. But the truth is, even Greek philosophy began to weave its way into the church and it made it so easy for the Gnostics to pick off many in the church. But the, the real heart issue was this issue of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Desiring for the spotlight. Desiring the credit. Wanting followers. Wanting to be right and to be recognized for being right. The other issue that ends up creating this disunity is what I'm going to call issues of rejection or hurt. And these hurts Remember I used the example some months ago about the splinter that in the finger that got infected. And that hurt, even though it's not someone else's fault, they didn't bump into me, but I bumped into them, it hurts and it's easy to blame the other person. Have you ever had a hurt foot? My wife had a hurt foot some time ago. And it was so hard, she had it in a, a, a brace of sorts, but including me, sometimes we wouldn't see it and we would bang it and she would go, oh, it would be so painful. And But here, now, the spiritual truth of this is that because there is a hurt in here and people even touch on it, it magnified, it feels so painful because that hurt is not truly healed. It feels so painful that we start blaming people. It's not my fault, it's yours. It's yours. And that breeds defensiveness. It breeds accusations. It breeds divisiveness and disunity. Why? Because there are problems in here. Here's where I'm going with this. If the church wants to be unified, it is not about 
stuff outside the gospel and believing those things that are that they're all right. I, I, I truly believe that there is a delight to some degree. I've got to be careful here. In which even though there are some things hard to understand and we may not be in full agreement on them, the delight in God's heart is that we are able to overlook those and we are able to love and serve. And the essence of all of this, I truly believe, James chapter 4, is humility. In James chapter 4, he starts off by saying, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? What's at the heart of this disunity here? And in, in Jerusalem, where James was located, Jerusalem was a very large, just many thousands. But there was an immaturity there. I don't know, maybe it was because some of them still held on too strongly to the law. Some of them held on to, you know, just that... that Many times within the, the, the Hebrew mindset, there was this, I'm right, you're wrong. And, and James is saying, you need to get rid of this. Your hearts, they're proud. You envy one another. You, you should be the privileged person. Why do they have to have that? And there's envy as a result. He says, you adulterous people. Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches here. You adulterous people. And I seriously doubt that he is simply talking to believers. He is talking to a mixed group. He knows it, and you, you discover that immediately when he moves into chapter 5. It's very clear that many of the people in the church truly are not believers, and James knows this. You, I would even say that you discover it, if not from chapter 1, from chapter 2. Faith, if it does not evidence itself in good works, is useless, it's dead, and it's bleh in the mouth of God. But he's speaking to these people. Some, I don't know, maybe many, are adulterous people. They are friends with the world. They have adopted the mindset of the world. And then he says this. <clears throat> He says that in spite of the striving within our heart, he gives us more grace. Now, perhaps a better word for more is greater. That would be a little bit more literal in what the Greek is saying here. Greater grace. What's the big deal? Because I think James is wanting us to see a contrast here between God's grace and this striving, this envying within our spirit, God gives us greater grace, conquering, victorious grace, more than enough grace to overcome that which is in our heart that is creating this disunity and the quarrels and the arguments. And then he goes on and he just puts it out there. And he quotes from Scripture and says, that is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to deal with that striving in your deal with the hurts and the selfish ambition? You want to deal with that? You want to deal with those things that create disunity and quarrels and arguments in your home, in your groups, in your neighborhoods, in the church? That's keeping us 
from being able to be used by God to pour grace out into the world and create fertile ground for the seed to be planted, you are in the way of God's spiritual revival. Do you want to deal with that? Then you need to humble yourself. That is the issue. It's your pride. It is your pride. Submit to God. Then, oppose the devil, and he will flee. Now, as we go back to Romans 16, this issue, this inner turmoil, the answer is humbling ourselves before God. Allowing him, the great surgeon, to remove this crud, this junk, this influence of the world... So that we can do this, so that we can, in, so that we can influence the world, not be influenced by the world. So that in our arm-linking arm unity, the Spirit of God would work through us to bring awesome Spirit awakening, Spirit revival. And He says this: that in your obedience, recognizing these divisive people who are just wanting people to follow after them. They're filled with pride. Our hearts are humble and we obey God. We obey Him. He is our master, not these false teachers. He is our master. We're humbled before Him. We obey Him. And He says, if you do this, then the God of peace. And I believe that every single word in Scripture is there for a purpose. It's not just to ramble really super cool spiritual words off his tongue or off his pen. But the God of peace. You see, when there's peace, and God is the author of that peace in his church, when we're obeying him and we're laying down our offenses and we are willing to forgive and we're willing to love and we're willing to stop saying, you know what, it's all about me and me being right. And if you offend me, then I have every right I am justified in attacking you. I'm justified in reaching into your church and pulling a bunch of people out and starting my own. That is nonsense. That is in opposition to the very heart of Jesus' prayer. But the God of peace will do what? He is going to crush Satan under your feet your feet of obedience, your feet of unity, your feet of crucifying self, your feet of denying selfish ambition, your feet of obedience and humility before Him, you will crush, or God will crush Satan under your feet. I believe this is the call of Jesus' church. That if we are truly unified, then that God of unity, that God of peace, will crush Satan under our feet. Can I ask you this? Are there problems in your home? Are there struggles? I believe that God wants to crush Satan under your feet in your home. Crush him. If there's a child that is, that is rebellious, how are we going to deal with this? Check your heart. God, am I fully yielded to you? Is there selfish ambition in me? 
Are there hurts in me? Am I creating disunity in my home? Am I creating disunity with my husband or with my wife? Where is this disunity, lack of peace coming from? Because if I am humbled and submitted to his lordship, he promises, the God of peace promises, he will crush the enemy in your home. And he will do it under your feet of obedience, under your feet of submission, under your feet that is surrendered to his will and not demanding your own. You see, it is that heart that he is wanting trampled upon. That heart that insists on my way, that heart that insists I'm right and you're wrong. But you see, church, when we are humbled before him, he will not just simply crush Satan under our feet in our home, but as we move into the communities and we bring this gospel, he will crush the enemy in their homes and in their neighbors' homes and in their neighborhood. And before you know it, we are going to see people, families rescued, neighbors rescued. We're going to see neighbors' arguments ended. We're going to see the, uh, the macaws and the, uh, the Campbells and whoever the people's names are. They're constantly fighting. That's going to be done with. These rivalries done with, um, rivalries within extended family, gone, because they have surrendered to Jesus Christ, and the God of peace has crushed the enemy under their feet. It's got to start here, though. It's got to start here. Where am I breeding this disunity? Where are there hurts? in which because of them I'm lashing out? Is there pride and selfish ambition that's wanting to exalt myself? Maybe put others down. Make me feel better. Try and pull people follow me. This is pride. And God said it breeds disunity. Allow the God of peace to crush Satan under your feet. If he can do that in our homes, church, we will see the world, the communities that Jesus' church is reaching out to, one to his lordship. That is his goal. May we be one that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. Will you stand with me? Church, as you're standing, here's what I've learned. We must be ruthless with this. This isn't something that is a game or that we treat lightly. It is a deep-rooted issue. It is perhaps in most, if not all, of our hearts in varying degrees, and it must be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. Father, we humble our hearts before you. Father, if we don't recognize, if there is this issue in us and we are not recognizing it, please, God, in your mercy, show us. And I'm asking you, Lord, that our God of peace would soon and very soon crush Satan under our feet. May we see him demolished 
His plans confounded. His works destroyed in our homes. In our relationships. In our church. And as we bring the gospel to the community in our community. In our city. In this nation. As your church is truly unified. Completely unified. Do this, God, and bring unprecedented revival. Start with me. Jesus, start with me. Be Lord over everything, every area. Father, we love you so much. You pour out grace more grace, greater grace. And I'm asking you, Father, that we are going to see the power of our great God at every moment in our lives. Father, I even pray for tomorrow morning as the evangelism team goes out unified that souls would be rescued, brought out of the kingdom of darkness into your the kingdom of the Son you love, and whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do this, God, tomorrow, and rescue these lost souls that none would perish, that all should come to repentance. In Jesus' name I pray.